0: This podcast is sponsored by the AFE Foundation. The AFE Foundation is the only patient advocacy organization serving those affected or devastated by amniotic fluid embolism. Their mission is to spur research, raise public awareness, and provide support for those whose lives have been touched by this often fatal maternal health complication. You can learn more about the AFE Foundation at www.afesupport.org. That's www.afesupport.org. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. This is our second of a three-part series on amniotic fluid embolism. My name is Julie Arafe, Simulation Director at CCOB, and I'm here with my partner, Stephanie Martin, Medical Director and Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Let's recap what we learned about AFE in the first episode of this series. AFE is a catastrophic, unpredictable reaction to amniotic fluid entering the maternal bloodstream. It is made by clinical diagnosis only. Fetal debris in the maternal circulation is commonly found in women without AFE and is not diagnostic of AFE. There needs to be four diagnostic criteria to make the diagnosis. Number one, sudden onset of cardiopulmonary arrest or both hypotension and respiratory compromise. Second, documentation of overt DIC following appearance of the initial signs and symptoms. Number three, clinical onset during labor or within 30 minutes of placental delivery. Number four, no fever during labor. We are often asked to do lectures on AFE or help with creating bundles for AFE management you're probably already training for how to manage an AFE in all of your units. By preparing for common OB emergencies plus code response, you are preparing for an AFE. Suzanne, why don't you talk about what we mean by this?
1: Thanks, Julie. You know, we were talking about planning for this uh, podcast and we wanted to simplify How to manage an AFE because it can be overwhelming. And we know the outcomes in these patients can be devastating. So, to prepare, let's talk about clinical management goals. And we're going to utilize three B's. So, remember the three B's associated with AFE the first, breathing. Second, blood pressure. Third, bleeding. We're going to go over those individually. The first, breathing. The first B, breathing. And I want you to think respiratory compromise. The presentation in each patient may differ. So the presentation may be moderate symptoms or it can be severe and acute uh, rapid onset respiratory arrest. Okay, so you're going to see clinical signs and symptoms of acute onset of hypoxemia, pulmonary edema, or respiratory arrest, you know, or a combination of those. Uh, it is very common for these patients to complain of dyspnea. So acute onset, not a chronic occurrence. It may happen in minutes, and it usually happens very, very rapidly within a few minutes, and not in hours, and more like a uh, chronic-type clinical picture. That is not AFE. And remember, respiratory compromise is happening at the same time as the second B, and that is blood pressure. So how do you manage breathing, that first B? Our first attempt is to maintain a normal oxygen saturation of greater than 95%. So if she doesn't have a pulse oximeter on, quickly put on a pulse oximeter and try to maintain that pulse oximetry saturation greater than 95%. So how do we do that? Put on a face mask. That's going to be your first um, resuscitation measure. And that is going to be turned all the way up at least to 10 liters in a non-rebreather face mask tight on the face. Assess for pulmonary edema. Listen to the breath sounds. And that will be, again, rapid onset. However, if there's still no pulmonary edema onset, still consider AFE if you have a rapid desaturation in the pulse oximetry values. And then you need to anticipate and prepare for early intubation. And some of the Issues with intubation in a pregnant patient is that we may require smaller endotracheal tube. We have compensated respiratory alkalosis blood gases, and we want to also include positive pressure ventilation in the measure, in the resuscitation. So number one, breathing. The next B is blood pressure. Think hypotension or cardiac arrest. And we're going to focus right now on managing hypotension and come back to cardiac arrest in a minute. Certainly, if you have a rapid onset of hypotension or cardiac arrest, AFE is a consideration uh, that we make and look for those other signs uh, that we just discussed a while ago in the diagnostic criteria. If the patient is not in cardiac arrest, the hypotension is happening at the same time as the respiratory compromise. So you have two areas that you're seeing simultaneously occurring in this patient. Again, rapid onset. And remember from our last podcast, AFE commonly occurs in active labor and it may be around the time of the epidural. So this may become a little confusing sign and symptom. However, AFE is not caused by the epidural and respiratory compromise is not caused by the epidural. So if you have both of those in combination, even if it's around the time of the epidural, consider AFE and look for further compromise. Let's review how blood pressure and cardiac output are connected. When blood pressure falls, and again, this is a rapid onset, your cardiac output is going to decrease, and then perfusion to all organs will decrease. This includes the uterus. In fact, the uterus is one of the first organs to lose perfusion as cardiac output output rapidly falls. This may show, as changes in the fetal heart rate tracing, and often, and has been my experience as well, you will show a sudden onset of prolonged deceleration followed by bradycardia. And that may be the first sign and symptom you may see. And again, simultaneously, this is occurring with respiratory compromise. So you're going to see rapid onset of all three of these things, possibly, if the patient is still pregnant, and you're going to have quite the situation to manage um, at the bedside. So how do you manage hypotension, blood pressure, IV access? So we want large bore peripheral volume lines. Anticubital is a great site because it's closer to the heart. And you can put a larger uh, gauge IV line in your antecubital site. And my personal favorite is a central line. <laughs> central lines, you're going to need to man- manage a hemorrhage at a later time. And so a central line will give you access. Um, and we'll, in pregnancy, our, our site of choice is the right internal jugular. Eventually, you're going to want to think about hemodynamic monitoring, and that will be with an arterial line in place. You certainly can look at volume status with a CVP or a PA catheter, but initially, that central line is going to be used for managing that blood pressure by giving volume. You're going to want to do continuous ECG monitoring, and as we stated before, continuous SpO2 monitoring. The second step in correcting blood pressure is to correct the preload by giving crystalloid infusions at a rapid rate. And we're going to want to go ahead in these patients to go ahead and activate the massive transfusion protocol. If correcting the preload needs to be done rapidly and crystalloids um, are not managing the blood pressure, colloids may be considered... But anticipate that the colloid will move eventually into the third space with these patients. Correcting hypotension also involves positioning. So, whatever position as far as uh, hemodynamic monitoring, uh, and you're placing those lines at the same time, usually you're going to be in a supine position with a left tilt um, or a tilt for the patient uh, as far as the positioning to correct hypotension. And then Lastly, vasopressors after volume may be considered. Transthoracic or transesophageal echo can also assist us in correcting preload by giving us measurements of uh, our volume status at the time the measurement is taken. Vasopressors may become essential if the mean arterial pressure is less than 65 millimeters of mercury, and that's our goal. We don't truly have a a another value that we shoot for in measure in in monitoring and in titrating these vasopressors except for sixty-five millimeters of mercury, mean arterial pressure. And the vasopressors that would be considered would be epinephrine, which is also used in anaphylaxis. And when you think about the pathophysiology of AFE, this may be our first line treatment. Um, phenylephrine, norepinephrine, vasopressin, and dopamine. Our third B in clinical management is bleeding. And I want you to think of DIC. That is one of the criteria for diagnosis. And in this type of patient, in this uh, cause of DIC, it's different than what we normally see with DIC and hemorrhage because most commonly with DIC and hemorrhage, we see the DIC follow the hemorrhage. But with an AFE, the DIC precedes the hemorrhage. So, you may see bleeding eventually, but initially what we have is a consumptive coagulopathy, and then you'll see the hemorrhage. So, you're going to see extensive hemorrhage eventually, but originally the DIC has already occurred. So, what we might see is bleeding from the urethra, IV sites, uh, incision sites,
0: before you see additional hemorrhage. Well, that's, that is a lot to think about, Suzanne. Um, and certainly, one of the things you need to do when you've got this type of a situation is to get help in the room. There is absolutely no way one person can deal with all of the things that need to be done. This can be accomplished by calling a rapid response or a code. And it's going to depend on your institution as to which is the most appropriate for your patient. Um, in a code, the responses need to be near, nearly simultaneous. So most often, if you've called a code, you're going to have the right people in the room. Any patient that is uh, deteriorating rapidly needs to have a lot of people in the room. It's not unique to amniotic fluid embolism, and certainly in cardiac arrest, getting the right people in the room and those people knowing what their job is is going to be very critical to getting the right thing done for the patient. As I said, this is this is true regardless of the size of the hospital or the level of your hospital. The patient sets the standard of care not the hospital. So a patient in arrest or a patient with AFE is going to require a group of people to respond. Now, if you're in a hospital that has maybe one or two nurses assigned to the labor and delivery unit because you have a very small number of deliveries, your job is going to be To figure out where those other staff members are going to come from. How are you going to get those people in the room? And this may be a situation where you call the code and people from other units like your intensive care unit or your emergency room come and respond. Every hospital has the right number of people and the right mix of people that need to come. It's just, where are those people? They may not be on labor and delivery. And if you think about it, Most hospitals have a requirement of basic life support to work at the hospital, which means literally anybody who's physically able can do chest compressions. So you may have to think about things a little bit differently, but you have to get the right number of people in the room. In our next um, uh, part three, we're going to talk about simulation and we'll have a lot more to say about this. So typically, you're going to call an RRT when your patient has a pulse, and you're going to call a code when your patient is pulseless. Now, again, that's going to depend on your hospital and those specific circumstances that you're, you're practicing in. It's important that obstetrics gets called, the obstetrician, that an anesthesiologist gets called. And if the patient is undelivered, that a pediatric or neonatal provider is called. You should know what that practice is in your own institution, what is going to be the best way to get these people in the room. This can be an issue if you have new staff, if you have rotating residents or traveling nurses with limited orientation Um, Some physicians work at multiple institutions. They rotate on through different units. So there needs to be a very clear, distinct way of communicating to everyone coming in how you're going to mount this response and how you're going to get these people in the room to do what it is they need to do. This is one of the things that we help units do in our company, Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. We help teams identify what issues they're facing and coordinate their responses to OB emergencies. But let's get back to the clinical management. And cardiac arrest can be managed best uh, by our medical director, Stephanie. She has had so many experiences with cardiac arrest. So we're going to let Stephanie talk about this. Thanks, Julie. Yeah. um, We hear a lot when we're working with hospitals
2: and teams that one of the things that they're very worried about and want to make sure that they prepare for is amniotic fluid embolism. And, you know, as we said earlier, if you are preparing for obstetric emergencies in your unit, then you're preparing for an amniotic fluid embolism and you don't necessarily need to be preparing independently for AFE. So let's review our three B's, breathing, blood pressure, And bleeding, and if you're preparing for a respiratory uh, compromise issue or a respiratory emergency, if you're preparing for a patient with hypotension, if you're preparing for a patient with hemorrhage, then you're prepared for taking care of a patient with an amniotic fluid embolism. The challenge is that all these things can be happening at once. The reality is, even with a patient with respiratory failure or hemorrhage or whatever, if you don't correct that problem, you're going to be ending up dealing with all three at once in those, uh, in those patients as well. Now, cardiac arrest is kind of the, you know, the additional element that falls under breathing. So if, if your patient or, or uh, blood pressure, I should say. So if your patient um, either develops cardiac arrest immediately or progresses to cardiac arrest, your management for a patient who has cardiac arrest from an amniotic fluid embolism is no different than anybody else who has cardiac arrest while pregnant. And if they're not delivered, you're going to start with your BLS and progress to ACLS. And that means left uterine displacement, get every, all the help that you need in the room. And your goal ultimately is to have a resuscitative hysterotomy or cesarean section, formerly known as a perimortem cesarean section, uh, within uh, start within four minutes with the goal to have the baby delivered within five. Now, we've changed the name of resuscitative cesarean section to from perimortem because the intent really is to try and resuscitate the mom and hopefully not end up with a mortal situation, even though that may happen. And the evidence really does support that, re, that doing a resuscitative cesarean section in a pregnant woman with cardiac arrest does not worsen her likelihood of survival. And in fact, it's the only hope for saving the baby if you've got a mom in, in cardiac arrest, unless you're able to get return of spontaneous circulation essentially within a first couple of minutes. And even then, there may be very poor perfusion to the uterus depending on what your underlying etiology was. So really what I'm trying to do is empower you to feel comfortable that by doing this procedure, this surgical procedure in a patient in cardiac arrest, you're not worsening the situation. In fact, you're doing just the opposite. You're offering whatever possibility there is of getting return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC and uh, improving the uh, maximizing the outcome for the neonate. Now, we have another podcast on perimortem cesarean section, resuscitative cesarean section that you can listen to if you want to hear more information, but a couple of key tips. Number one, do not move the patient anywhere, including to the operating room. You perform your resuscitation and even the cesarean delivery, wherever the patient may be, whether that's in her bed, on the floor, in the operating room, wherever it is, that's where it's done. You don't need an entire operating suite kit. You just need a scalpel gloves and gowns and all that stuff are nice, but they are absolutely not necessary. And you should not delay doing anything in order to get those instruments or those, um, whatever supplies you think that you may need. There is no role for fetal monitoring or performing an ultrasound of the fetus. It does not play a role in how you manage a pregnant woman who is in cardiac arrest ever. Ever. The clock is ticking, and your goal is to deliver that baby within five minutes. And if you st- take time to get all the equipment, move the patient, or document whether you've got a heartbeat on the fetus or not, you are wasting time, and you will not be able to meet your goal of five minutes. Now, the reality is that the likelihood of getting this patient delivered within five minutes is not great. Even in studies that have been done where people are specifically trained to do this, it's very difficult to meet the standard. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and get all the obstacles out of our way in order to meet, to try and meet this five minute goal, but you have no hope of meeting it if you are not routinely simulating and practicing how to remove obstacles and getting the team ready to do a resuscitative cesarean section in a timely manner. So simulation is really the key uh, to try and accomplish this. Now, if you are successful at getting return of uh, spontaneous circulation in your patient, you have to remember the patient was in DIC prior to or simultaneously with her cardiac arrest and you need to anticipate bleeding. So uh, in a patient with an AFE, bleeding is is going to happen as soon as that uh, a patient has ROSC. Now, she won't be bleeding during the cesarean itself because there is no perfusion to the uterus. If there is no blood pressure, no cardiac output, there will be no bleeding. But once she gets circulation again, then that's when the bleeding starts and you need to anticipate that. And how you deal with that is obviously through a massive transfusion protocol, but you need to simulate in order to how to, uh, how to make that happen in a timely manner. Now, once the patient is resuscitated, if you're successful in resuscitating her, the management is going to depend entirely on the patient condition, and that's really be beyond the scope of this podcast, but, you know, you're going to take into account, is the patient um, maintaining her circulation, or are you constantly having to go back and forth between chest compressions and, and pausing, et cetera, is she actually maintaining it? And whether or not, you know, you might need to compress the aorta to redirect flow cephalad, Um, you might opt to pack the abdomen and close her once she is stabilized and able to be moved to an operating room Or you might opt to close her right there, wherever you may be. It depends. You might be in an operating room when this takes place. So really the immediate management is going to depend on the patient condition, but you do need to remember this patient is critically ill and will always go to an intensive care unit. Um, and, and you need to be prepared for that. She's got a long road ahead of her. Generally speaking, if you're successful in resuscitating, um, resuscitating her, as as survivors will will tell you. Now we're going to close out with um, a topic that's kind of gotten a lot of attention uh, recently, and we're hearing a lot about, and that's the AOK protocol. And the AOK stands for Atropine, Ondansetron, and Ketorolac. And basically, um, a few years ago, a single case. Uh, description was published on a patient with what was described as an atypical AFE. When you review the, the publication, the patient actually did not meet criteria for AFE. She had a fever, she had about eight hours of respiratory insufficiency, and I don't believe she ever had DIC. But in any event, um, the they described it as an atypical AFE there's no way to really know what this patient actually had there's as we've talked about before there's no diagnostic test for an amniotic fluid embolism and they administered these medications and um declared it a novel therapy for the treatment of amniotic fluid embolism and this has really gotten traction in the obstetric community But the reality is, there's no controlled research on this protocol. And there is the potential for harm with these medications. And so, our take on the current state of our understanding of this is that this is not a treatment that is ready for prime time in the treatment of amniotic fluid embolism. And it is certainly not standard of care. So, to summarize kind of what we talked about today, remember the three B's for the clinical management of amniotic fluid embolism breathing, blood pressure, and bleeding. AFE is definitely not A-OK and A-OK is not ready for A-F-E. Anecdotes are not science. And in our next episode, we're going to go through a case study of a patient with an amniotic fluid embolism, and we're going to talk about how you can prepare for managing A-F-E with simulation. We want to thank the A-F-E Foundation for sponsoring this episode of the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast. And we want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.ClinicalConceptsInOB.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at CriticalCareOB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the read app, qxmd.com slash apps, or our website.
0: This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baer. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.